So I thought it would be appropriate to talk a little bit about wise speech and mindfulness, as this is a time when many people are with family or um, sometimes not their chosen set of friends. <laughs> and so there, there's a need. Sometimes people say even, oh, this is a time of challenge for my practice. How many people think that is a time of challenge for your practice? Yeah, a few, a couple hands. I see some nods. It's interesting because it, it might be true. Um, definitely we need a different set of skills sometimes. But it's actually a view to impose the idea that this is going to be a challenge already starts to bias your mind a little bit. So we consider that some of what we'll have to do is unpleasant and then we label it a challenge and we sort of gear ourselves up for it, believing it will be hard. But there's other ways to see it, like we could be happy, for example, that we get a chance to really see our patterns and work with things that we um, might not get to work with otherwise. Different things come up. If you just live in your complacent world much of the time, and I don't mean it's automatically that way, but our habitual things that we've set up, we don't always run into the things we need to let go of. Sometimes we do, but we don't always. And also just to, you know, just to add a little lightness, really there are no mistakes on this path. I mean, people think, oh, I messed that up, I didn't act the way I wanted to. Okay, okay, that's fine. But in the overall big picture, I don't think there are any mistakes. Uh, We're on this path, and it goes through challenging places, like the way a trail goes through swamps sometimes. And that's just how it is. (laughs) And uh, it's not all smooth sailing. Sometimes when we look back, the areas that we thought were our biggest mistakes were actually pretty good, you know? There can be things where we look back and we think, wow, I was so out of character there. And at the moment you think, oh, and then you look back and you say, that was a moment of freedom. I was acting actually quite spontaneously and not out of my usual patterns. So I'll offer some practical tips for interactions with people who are different from your chosen circle of friends. Not only for their practical value, but also actually for the ways in which they advance our path. I want to place it in the context of this actually being useful and good for us. But first, the uh, practicalities. So one of the greatest instructions that I've found for um, interactions is actually the first part of um, Gregory Kramer's Insight Dialogue Instructions. He has a whole system um, for uh, the Dharma of interaction, but without needing to explain all of it, the first three steps are um, pause, relax, open. And those are so useful. I'll talk about them a little bit, uh, even though they're fairly clear. But the pause, it's good to have a reminder of that. Just pausing before we speak 
or before we act, or before we decide that we're going to believe that initial thing that came up in our mind, if we just put a little pause, it creates a wonderful space. And it doesn't have to be so long that people are looking at us like, what's the matter? Aren't you going to respond? Um, it can be really quick. and The mind is so quick, we can actually have our pause and other folks don't really notice. And just creating a little space. It helps a lot. And then relax. Um, Relax reminds us that when we're in situations that feel stressful or charged or just even just sort of uncomfortable, um, we tend to tense in certain ways. You'll find your own patterns. Uh, You may have it more in your shoulders or more in your chest or your belly, Um, even your arms or legs. I spent a number of years in my practice, this wasn't the the only thing I was doing, but a big part of my daily life practice was to physically relax. And it sounds so simple, but I found that as I, you know, at first it was fairly easy, oh, okay, you know, just sit a little bit more comfortably. But then as I got more mindful and I continued to do the practice, I found all these subtle ways that I was bracing myself, or like when I was touching surfaces, I tended to create a little bit of tension there. I don't know if I wanted to like feel the surface more or something, or just resist contact. But I had so many little ways that I was tense, and it's still a useful practice for me to scan through the body and just check, are there little hints of uh, tightness or contraction? Not that the aim is that we'll be always totally open, totally relaxed. I don't think that's realistic. Um, But to be aware of those little body tensions, which are often indicating emotions, for example, can be very useful. So that's part of relax. It's just that we just want to tend toward being at ease, like we did in the meditation, where you try to set the body at ease, but, you know, the parts that don't go along, okay but at least we're aware of them. And that's good, actually, in in these interactions. If you're a little bit relaxed, it helps the other person be relaxed, even subconsciously. Uh, It can can have positive effects. And then open can be the hard part. You know, when we're in a comfortable situation, of course, it's easy to relax and then open, take in that sunset, take in the tea time with our friend. What about when you're feeling like, oh, how am I going to get through this conversation? I don't want to open. <laughs> I, I don't want to hear any more of this, <laughs> or whatever it is. Um, but there's a way of, always a way of opening. We can open to the other person. Um, for example, why might they think that? Why is that beneficial for them? Why are they thinking that the way that they're acting is going to make them happy or make this a good situation. Sometimes people are confused about that, but we can be sure that they're always acting out of something that they think will be beneficial or useful. It just may not be accurate. And so it's actually useful to consider that and to open to what that might be, try to connect on that level, or to open um, to the notion that at any given moment people are doing as well as they can. 
you might say, that's not true, they can do better than that, but what about all those moments when you could have done better than that? But you couldn't at that moment, because why? You were tired, you were distracted, you were hungry, you were worried about something that you had just heard before walking into the room, and then you weren't at your best. But you were at your best at that moment, right? You'd think, oh, I could have done that better. But the conditions were as they were. So what about extending that to other people? They're doing the best they can right now. Could I help somehow by the way I behave? And then, of course, there's opening to ourselves. We don't need to cut off our own feelings. We don't need to pretend that we're peaceful and equanimous when we're actually feeling kind of angry or irritated. But we should at least open and acknowledge that in ourselves before, this is the pause part, before just leaping into that. But your feelings matter too. They're part of the whole circumstance. So pause, relax, open. It's not a formula for doing something exactly. It's a, a guideline for producing what is appropriate in that moment. Do you see the difference? These are not formulaic teachings that are going to tell you, here's what you need to say in this situation. Pre-planned, probably not the right thing to say. But if we pause, relax, open, the right spontaneous thing might come forth. I used to have a little wish for myself um, at the end of meditation. I used to get up early and meditate before work when I was still working. And it was hard to carry the whole meditation into work, but I would at least wish at the end of the sit, may I bring forth what is appropriate today. That was kind of my blessing for the day. A second technique, if you want to call it that, is to practice what's called WAIT, which is an acronym that stands for Why Am I Talking? I love this one because So often we are already talking before we think about, why am I saying this? (laughs) And it's actually useful during the pause, for example, to reflect, um, even momentarily, what are my motives at this moment? Why do I want to say something to this person? It doesn't mean you shouldn't, um, but it's nice to be aware. Often our motives, just so you know, are a little mixed. And, um, you know, we, we do genuinely want to connect or we do genuinely want to tell them the answer to what they've asked. But we may also want to look good. We may also want to get a little dig in. We may also want to demonstrate, uh, take control of the conver- conversation and demonstrate that we know something and kind of steer them in a certain direction or whatever. You know, all of our little things, mostly karmic, right? With our, if we're with our family, a lot of strong karma there. And so just knowing what are my motives at this moment can help a lot. And if you find that they're mixed, it doesn't mean you have to stop and not act at all. What did Philip Moffat said? If it weren't for mixed motives, I'd have no motives at all. You know, so it's, um, instead we can say, we can acknowledge, okay, I'm wanting to dominate this a little bit because I know where it goes if we let this person run. And I'm going to do it out of compassion and not out of irritation with how they are. 
at least just try to redirect it toward the more skillful part of what you're doing. Or maybe if you see a clear enough motive that doesn't look good, you can stop and not say that. It's interesting, we'll see when we start doing this practice, how strong the tendency is that we need to be a certain way for no other reason than that's how people expect us to be. This is always how I act around my father. This is always how I act around my sister. If I do something different, she's going to say, hey, what's up with you? So what? Let her say that. Try something different. It's really helpful to break patterns. Another question we can ask is, um, who is this for? Who am I speaking for? Is it for the other person? Is it for some third party? Is it for the whole group? Is it for myself? And again, you might find mixed motives there, but it's useful to be aware that sometimes we're speaking because we're relieving our own discomfort, and sometimes we're speaking in order to serve some other purpose for other people. And then there's always the guideline of why speech is this true, beneficial, timely, and kind. Not that everything we say is going to be that way, but those are kind of helpful targets to aim at with our speech. But I do put a caveat on this one, not because there's anything wrong with those four things, but because sometimes if we take that on a little bit too heavily, which we can if we're desperately grabbing for a practice to do in this moment, is that we, our speech can sound a little forced. If we're trying very hard to be true and beneficial and timely and kind, we may produce speech that other people look at us and say, are you using some technique? Um, maybe. And it can um, sound a little stilted, so it's good to bear that in mind. Sometimes what I do is I set an intention before I walk into a room. You know, like, may my speech be beneficial. And then I forget. I forget about it. Not because it's not useful or I'm just throwing it aside, but I, I set the intention and then kind of trust that it will carry me some, somehow appear at the right moment instead of making it like everything I'm saying, is this true, is this beneficial, etc. Um, often a good way to practice those conventions, those wise speech parameters, is actually to just speak and then notice how it feels. Because these are not just arbitrary, you know, the Buddha said this would be a good idea kind of things. They actually, um, if you speak in this way, you will be able to be relaxed <laughs> and you'll feel okay about what you're saying. And if it's not in line with those, you will feel a little off. As you get more mindful, you'll see this. And so one of, a sort of a better check for why speech starts to become listening to your own speech and feeling how it feels in your body. And then that feedback of, eh, <laughs> I feel a little tense as I say this, can alert you, okay, am I shading the truth? Am I pushing and trying to say this when it's not the right time? Something like that. So I offer that as a little bit more sophisticated version of the wise speech practice. And then there's um, 
just awareness of the body, which I shouldn't put just in front of that. It's quite profound. I was at a um, a workshop like a last weekend, and one of the exercises that we did, we did a little small group exercise, and the aim of it, it was deliberately created so that um, the person who was speaking would feel put on the spot, and that was that was known, and it was just part of the structure. And so we did this scenario, and the person I was watching who was being put on the spot, it was so interesting to watch his energy, like his body kind of sat up straight, um, but not in a, a mindful way, like when we're meditating. And you could just see like all the energy rush up into his head, and he started speaking very quickly. <laughs> and, you know, we've all been there also, right? But just the sense that when we're a little bit agitated in our interactions, the energy tends to go up. It's going straight up. And so literally finding ways to bring energy down is just balancing. And so you can, I've done this when you feel your feet on the floor, if they're on the floor. Um, Very helpful, feeling the earth beneath your feet or feeling the breath. Um, The breath is always there, even when we're speaking, even when we're interacting. It's not as easy to be aware of the breath in daily life than in meditation, say. Um, But it's an interesting practice to speak in a way that doesn't hinder the breath. If we could just speak in a way that didn't hinder the breath, it would go a long way, actually. So if that practice works for you as a way of monitoring your speech and producing wise speech, it can be a good one. Like, how could I, what would I have to say in order not to hinder my breath at this moment? That can be an interesting question, and then see what you say. So, these are some very practical suggestions. Is all of this just kind of, you know, Kim's idea of what might be useful? Actually, no. Um, The Buddha knew that we would be interacting with others. <laughs> it was, it's always been a part of human life. And so he also knew that such interactions can get off balance. And that was literally the image that he used, is that they get off balance. And it's such a great image because even when we, like when we develop mindfulness for ourselves on the cushion or you know, sitting in meditation, we can get the idea, okay, I know a little bit about mindfulness now, you know, I can stay with two breaths and, you know, I can sit for 45 minutes. But then we go and we interact with somebody else and lo and behold, nothing they're doing is predictable. <laughs> you know, it's, we can be mindful maybe of like what we're doing, but there, there's a sense, there can be a sense that the interaction itself is not, um, not under control. We're not aiming for control here, but this off-balance feeling the Buddha knew about And so he actually had a teaching where he used an image of acrobats. Um, So I want to talk about that that teaching a little bit. It can be applied to our holiday interactions. So the main teaching is how to protect oneself and others. That's the language he uses. He uses the language protect, but we could... If you like it better, you can say, care for. How can I care for myself and others in interactions? 
does it take does it take on a different feeling? Remember, I asked at the beginning, is this going to be a challenging time for your practice? What if it were a time to take on the practice of caring for yourself and others, or protecting yourself and others? That might give it a different flavor, better framework. I think it's a good framework to adopt, actually. So you want to protect others, actually, in interactions because you love and care about them. Even if they're your most challenging interaction person, um, there is some sense of, okay, you know, I'm related to this person or whatever. Um, and there's a, you know, there's a wanting to care for them, partly because you love and care about them, and partly because you want to protect yourself from being in interactions that are getting too far off balance. And, uh, you know, generally caring for our inner life is what this practice is about, is to make sure that we take care of that. So, I won't read the whole sutta. It's actually pretty short, but I won't read the whole thing. But basically, the summary is that um, the Buddha is talking about an acrobat. And you can imagine this in an ancient Indian city. A couple of acrobats come to town, and they set up in the town square, and they're going to do some performance and hope to get a few coins for it. And so um, you can imagine the acrobat and his apprentice with a bamboo pole, and I guess the leader sets the pole on his shoulder, and then the apprentice is supposed to climb up the pole and do something up there. You can imagine this is quite a balancing act. And so the apprentice says, um, you protect me, and I'll protect... No, the, sorry, the main acrobat says to the apprentice, you protect me, and I'll protect you, and that way, thus guarded by one another, protected by one another, we'll display our skills, collect our fee, and get down safely from the bamboo pole. And the apprentice says, no, that's not the right way. He says, you protect yourself, and I'll protect myself, and thus each self-guarded and self-protected will display our skills, collect our fee, and get down safely from the pole. So then, of course, they have to go and ask the Buddha. And the Buddha verifies that the apprentice had the better idea, and that um, it's actually easier to, for two people to stay in balance if each one is protecting themselves than if one is trying to protect the other and the other is trying to protect that one. And he says, that is the method. I will protect myself. Thus should the establishments of mindfulness be practiced. I will protect others. Thus should the establishments of mindfulness be practiced. Protecting oneself, one protects others. Protecting others, one protects oneself. So, at first he verifies that the apprentice has the better idea, but then when he expounds on it a little bit, he, he includes both of them, actually, is that when we protect ourselves, we're automatically going to protect the other. And if we attempt to protect another, we will actually also protect ourselves, provided that what we're doing is mindfulness. So the method, the, the key message is that uh, mindfulness is the protector. So how is that? First of all, so then he goes on and describes what he meant. And he says, how is it that by protecting oneself, one protects others? By the pursuit, development, and cultivation of the four establishments of mindfulness. And we don't need to go into great detail on 
what those are and what that means, but the essentially the four establishments of mindfulness are the four areas in which we apply our mindfulness, we apply our attention, should I say, such that mindfulness will grow and develop in us. That's why they're establishments. They help establish the quality of mindfulness. And they're, very, they're quite straightforward. They're the body, <laughs> which you know, we all know, mindfulness of the body. That's when we're doing breath meditation, for example. Uh, the feeling tone. And so that's whether experience is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. It's actually a great practice, even though it sounds kind of a little odd, because we don't often pay attention to that particular dimension. But if, if we just notice, actually, whether things are pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, we'll discover the place where the mind tends to get hooked, basically, is that we really want the pleasant, and we, want, we don't want the unpleasant. And that's a really basic driving force for our mind. So it's very useful to devote some attention to that. And then the third foundation is the mind, which is includes emotions, thoughts, intentions, views, motives, those kinds of things. And whether or not the mind is concentrated, whether or not the mind has greed, whether or not the mind has hate, Noticing these things about how the mind is, basically. Very useful to get familiar with that. And then the fourth foundation is, um, it's just called Dhammas, but it refers to, you start to have a little bit of a time dimension in there. What, how do things arise? How do they pass away? How do they cause each other? So that adds kind of one more dimension once we start to notice that, we're actually really on the way to ending suffering, because once we start to notice how does suffering arise and how does suffering cease, that gets really useful. But all the foundations of mindfulness are connected and will lead to each other. So it's not so hard to see that by protecting oneself with mindfulness, we're going to protect others, because if we're aware of our body, I talked about that under the practical tips. If we're aware of our motives, talked about that too. If we're aware of, of the energy coming up that we want to talk, all that awareness can help us make choices in the moment about whether to say what we're going to say or how to respond or whether to allow our, our button to be pushed by somebody else. We at least have a chance if we're being mindful to have a choice in that moment. And then we protect others because they're protected from our reactivity. Right? They're protected from us. Handling the interaction unskillfully doesn't mean they'll be skillful, doesn't mean they'll be mindful. Remember, (coughs) the apprentice had it right. I'll protect myself, and your protection is up to you. That's a good equanimity practice. But even in protecting ourselves in that way, we are helping the other. We're helping the total situation. And then he expounds also, how is it that by protecting others, we could protect ourselves? And he says the answer to that is by patience, harmlessness, loving kindness, and sympathy. Maybe it's empathy. Patience, harmlessness, loving kindness, and empathy. And so I think the implication here 
is that the practice of mindfulness is going to cultivate these qualities in us. At least that's my experience with cultivating mindfulness. It becomes easier for me to be patient because I'm already practicing non-react the non-reactivity of mindfulness. It's easier for me to want harmlessness because I feel in myself the pain when I do harm, when I speak inappropriately, or when I even when I think uh, thoughts that aren't very useful. There's a certain amount of suffering there that you're not aware of if you're not mindful. So mindfulness really sharpens the desire for harmlessness. Love and kindness and sympathy, these come about because we see, once we're mindful, we see how wild our mind is. I mean, that's almost the first insight people have is, wow, I have no control over my thoughts. I am not able to follow even one breath, despite intending to. Uh, and then we realize, oh, this is what I've been living with. This is how my mind is. Now, it does gradually get tamed. There's an image of an ox <laughs> slowly being tamed. But imagine, this is how it is for the other person. And if they haven't practiced mindfulness, that's what they're going with. You've seen how your mind is. And so it's like, wow, okay, I get it. It's hard to be human. Uh, thank goodness that I have this practice, but who knows if they do. By the way, remember that you can't tell necessarily by looking at someone if they're being mindful. So don't automatically assume that they're not. Also, you can't see motivations very well in other people, just so you know. So please don't project those. Um, but essentially, this practice of mindfulness just can't go wrong in terms of interactions. We protect ourselves and we protect others at the same time. So you're just being aware. doesn't mean everything's going to go perfectly. It doesn't mean you're not going to be irritated. But it does mean that you'll minimize the harm that's done and the minimize the degree that the interactions get off balance, like those acrobats. Maybe you're the one with the pole on your shoulder and you have to deal with somebody on the top monkeying around a bit. The more mindful you are, the more likely you are to keep the pole up. So mindfulness has this lovely quality that it's naturally protective of ourselves and others, and also that it's naturally balancing. This sutta doesn't talk about it explicitly, although obviously the balance imagery is there. But there are other suttas that specifically say mindfulness, that one of the purposes of it is to monitor the total state of the mind, which in case you've noticed always has several things going on, <laughs> often has several things going on, and to balance the qualities. It's interesting to note that even good qualities, wholesome qualities, can get out of balance. It's the darndest thing about this practice, right? You would think, you know, Concentration is a great thing, but if it's not balanced with energy, it actually gets a little out of hand. Or investigation is a great thing, but if it becomes too skeptical and too clever, it's no longer beneficial. It has to be balanced with the brightness of faith. So there are all kinds of ways in which the mind can have too much of a good thing. And mind, it's okay, mindfulness balances that out. It will strengthen whatever else needs to be strengthened.
Maybe I'll finish with this quote from my Anaponica Terra. Just as certain reflex movements automatically protect the body, similarly the mind needs spontaneous spiritual and moral self-protection. The practice of bare attention will provide this vital function, or we could add mindfulness, certain forms of mindfulness. Such self-protection will safeguard others, individuals, and society from our own unrestrained impulses. Basically saying that what we can't see in ourselves is going to hurt ourselves and others. And there's really no way to practice awareness for ourselves alone. It's automatically going to help other people too. I always feel kind of happy about that with, with mindfulness. It doesn't mean we can totally protect others. They will need to do their own development, but we can minimize the harm through our own mindfulness. So I think I'll stop there and ask if there are any questions or comments. Good, you're all prepared and balanced and feeling totally ready for everything. It's not a challenge, it's a chance to care for yourself and others. All right, very good. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.